Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. The atheist Richard Dawkins, an Oxford scientist and atheist, in his book, The God Delusion, explains why he can't buy Christianity. He said, I just don't see Jesus coming down and dying on a cross as worthy of that grandeur. If there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian or any religion has ever proposed. <laughs> Dawkins didn't know that trying to make the case against Christianity, he was actually making the case for Christianity. You know, if Christianity had been some manufactured myth, it would have been a lot grander than the idea of God coming down and dying on a wooden cross in some obscure part of the world. But that is the message. And that message is foolishness, Paul said, to those who are perishing. But it's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. The message is God in the form of Jesus did die on a wooden cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and he was raised again on the third day. And so today, we're going to look at that last supper Jesus had with his disciples, the last supper before the first Easter. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 records that final week that led up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Let's look first at the betrayal preceding the Passover. Luke 22 begins by saying, now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. Uh, this word Passover is really a catch-all term for two important holidays, occurrences on the Jewish calendar. There's the Passover meal followed by the seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they both commemorated two important parts in Jewish history. First of all, the Passover meal. Every year, Perhaps as many as two and a half million Jews would go to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, Josephus tells us. The Passover meal had begun 1,400 years earlier to commemorate that event. Remember when God was trying to persuade Pharaoh to let the Israelites go to leave Egypt where they had been for 400 years as slaves? And so God sends 10 plagues. Nine of them don't change Pharaoh's heart, but the 10th one did. It was God saying, I'm going to send the death angel, and he will kill the firstborn of every household. And that includes the Egyptians and the Jews. He will kill the firstborn. But if you will take an innocent lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorpost of the house, I will pass over you in judgment. I had a few minutes last night and tuned in to the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. It was showing again on television. Cecil B. DeMille described that 
perfectly about what that must have been like. And when Pharaoh lost his own firstborn son, that was enough to convince him to let the people go. Well, God knew what was going to happen, and he told them to bake bread, but don't use any leaven in it. Leaven was used to make the bread rise. And when Pharaoh's heart turned, the Israelites need to get, to, to get out of there as quickly as possible. So they used unleavened bread, flat bread that hadn't risen and took it with them on their way to the promised land. So Passover meal was both to celebrate the time when God passed over them in judgment, if they had the faith to put the blood on their doorpost, and it was also the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, from that time forward, the Jews have celebrated the Passover yearly as a remembrance of what God did in their miraculous uh, deliverance from Pharaoh. <clears throat> now, when we look at verses one to six, this is probably, <coughs> pardon me, Tuesday or Wednesday of the final week of Jesus' life. Remember, Jesus came in to Jerusalem on the back of that donkey on what we call Palm Sunday today. Now really, it probably was Palm Monday, but we're not gonna get lost into the weeds on that. But the important thing is the people received him with a great enthusiasm, the Bible says. Now, verse two says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they may put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. While the Jews were preparing for Passover, the religious leaders were plotting on how to get rid of Jesus. They didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like what he was teaching. They wanted to kill him, but they also didn't want to incur the wrath of the people. So they were caught on the horns of a dilemma. How do we get rid of Jesus? And a willing participant volunteered his services. Look at verse three. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, each meaning man, Kerioth, the village he was from, belonging to the number of the 12. It was one of the disciples who would betray Jesus. Now, remember back in Luke chapter six that it tells us that Jesus prayed for whom he should select to be an apostle, and then he chose the 12, the last one being Judas. Now, you read that and you think, maybe Jesus should have prayed a little longer. I mean, that seems like a big mistake. But no, Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do, and this was all part of the plan to bring about his death and his salvation for those who would believe. Notice what it says in verse three. Satan entered Judas. How did he enter Judas? Through his one weak spot. He probably had many weak spots, but this was the biggest one, his love for money. Look at verse four. And Judas went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Christ to them. And they were glad. They agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. People asked the question, was Judas a Christian? Absolutely not. Not at all. He is what Jesus called in his teaching a tear false wheat. Jesus said there's the wheat and the tares. Tares look like wheat until the very end when they yield no fruit, no produce. And that was Judas. He was a fake Christian. 
And again, his temptation, his motivation was money. It's interesting that Zechariah 11 verse 12, that's the Old Testament, written 700 years before Christ, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Look it up. That's one of the greatest evidences for the inspiration of Scripture, all of the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this one thing, this point of application right here. God used Judas' sin to bring about his purpose. You know, this is the reason we should not be bitter and destroy our lives over those who wrong us and betray us. The fact is, God is bigger than your enemy. He's bigger than that person who has wronged you, who has hurt you. He is able to take their betrayals, their abuse, their insults, and use them to achieve his purpose in your life. He used Judas. God can do that for you too, and that's worth applauding. God meant it for good. Remember Joseph? Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, he said, and as for you, you meant it for evil. But guess what, brothers? God's bigger than you are. God used it for good to bring about this present result and to preserve many people alive. Now, we've looked at the betrayal before the Passover. Now, the stage is set for the observance of the Passover. Let's look at the preparation for the meal. Verse 7, then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Now, here's what would happen. As I said, Josephus said there were maybe 2.6 million Jews. Before the Passover meal, they would get a lamb. They would take it to the temple area and have it slain by one of the priests. And then they would take that slaughtered lamb, bring it back to their home, and that night it would be a part of the Passover celebration. Now, the regulation was the lamb had to be slain between 2.30 and 5.30 p.m. So think about this, 256,000 lambs possibly being slain in the temple in just a short amount of time. How was such a thing possible? Well, let me answer this question that many people have. They say, this is a contradiction of the Bible because we're saying Jesus on Thursday had the Passover meal Thursday night, he was slain on Friday, which means they observed the Passover on Thursday evening. And yet, John 18 clearly says that the religious leaders celebrated the Passover on Friday evening. Think about it. If they celebrated it Friday evening, the religious leaders, when did they sacrifice their lambs? Well, a few hours before that, from 2.30 to 5.30 p.m. When did Jesus die on the cross? He was on the cross from 9 till 3 o'clock. He died at 3 p.m. It's when he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. The exact moment on Friday afternoon that Jesus died was when hundreds of thousands of lambs were being slaughtered in the courtyard area of the temple. While the lambs were being slaughtered, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was dying for the sins of the world. Who could orchestrate such a thing but God? And yet, why did Jesus 
and his disciples celebrate on Thursday evening. Were they mixed up? Had they lost track of the days? Not at all. I think the best answer is what many Bible scholars believe, and that is there were two Passovers. It was according to how the Jews registered time. Jews living in Galilee in northern Israel counted days like we do from sunrise to sunrise. The Jews in southern Israel, they counted days from sunset to sunset. And thus you had two Passovers. And that aided the crowded conditions you would have had at the temple area, instead of trying to sacrifice them all in one afternoon, it was done over a two-day period. So Jesus and his disciples, they found a place like everybody. They had to rent rooms and find places to have their Passover meal. They found one according to Jesus' direction. They prepared the lamb, and now they were ready for the partaking of the meal now, Jesus was going to take this 1,400-year ordinance, if you will, and he was going to change the meaning of it. For 1,400 years, the Passover was a reminder of God's physical deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. But now Jesus was going to transform the meaning. This meal that we call the Lord's Supper would be to celebrate our deliverance from spiritual slavery through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 14. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. Haven't you seen these pictures of the Passover people seated, you know, banquet style in a U-shaped table, everybody in his chair, you know, smiling for the painter, you know. That's not what it was. In Jesus' day, the tables had no legs. They sat on the floor. And so that's why it says he reclined at the table. They rested probably on their left elbow so that they could partake of the food with their right hand. And notice what Jesus said in verse 15. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus wasn't saying, I'll never eat with you again. The fact is, just a few days later, after Jesus' resurrection, on three different occasions, he ate with his disciples in his resurrected body. And isn't that good to know, since we're going to have bodies just like Jesus, we're going to be eating in heaven? Did you know that? That's one of the ways we know it. And Paul says our, our Jesus' body is a prototype of the body we will receive. He was going to eat with them again, but what he was saying was, this Passover meal that I've transformed into a remembrance of me, I won't eat that with you again until heaven, until the kingdom of God. So this supper we're observing tonight, that's why you need to be here to get in practice, because we're going to be using it and observing it throughout eternity as a memorial for what Christ had done for us. Now, the original Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples and transformed was very complicated. It was an elaborate representation of what had happened to Israel in, during their time in Egypt. 
And all of the elements of what we call the Seder or Passover meal describe a part of that story. For example, they eat bitter herbs. That is a symbol of the bitterness of slavery they endured for more than 400 years in Egypt. Then they have a mixture of fruit, almost a paste-like mixture of fruit that is symbolic of the mortar that was used to build the great pyramids uh, at the hands of the enslaved Israelites. It was the hard work that they exerted. And then, of course, the lamb represented God's passing over them in judgment. This elaborate dinner was built around four cups of wine. And I've listed to you those four cups and where they uh, fell in the observance of Passover. This is what Jesus and his disciples were doing. The first cup is blessed by the head of the family and shared, and it's followed by the herbs dipped in sauce. That's what Jesus did in verse 17. Then the second cup comes after a liturgical explanation of why the Passover is celebrated and observed, and the singing of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. And then the third cup follows the blessing and breaking of the unleavened bread and the meal of the lamb. And finally, the fourth cup follows the singing of additional Hallel Psalms, probably Psalms 114 to 118. Now, here's the key thing. Verse 19 of Luke 22 takes, takes place between the second and the third cup of the Passover meal. Look at verse 19. And when he had taken some bread, unleavened bread, and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why was the bread Jesus took? Why was it unleavened? Remember what I said? Originally that night, God told them to bake bread without leaven so they didn't wait around for it to rise. They took it hot out of the oven, unrisen bread, so to speak. So to be true to Passover, it had to be unleavened bread. But Jesus used it for another reason. He said, this bread doesn't represent any longer what happened 1,400 years ago. This bread is my body. And this bread is unleavened because leaven in the Bible always represented sin. And this means that Christ's body was sinless. And that's what this bread is representing in what we now call the Lord's Supper. When Jesus came, this is so important, he didn't come as a spirit. He came in human flesh. He had to have a body in order to make his sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews understood that. He wrote in Hebrews 10, five through seven, therefore, when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering God you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure in those. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is what Jesus is saying to God the Father before he comes to Bethlehem. God, I'm doing your will. I'm coming in human form. I'm going to be sinless. And tonight when we take that bread or cracker, it is symbolic of the broken body of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus was willing to live the, leave the glory of heaven 
He was willing to give up all of the privileges of being the son of God to come and have his body broken for us. And then the cup. Verse 20 says, Jesus took the cup. This is the third of four cups in the Passover. And he attached a new meaning to that cup as well. Verse 20, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant, the new agreement in my blood. The old agreement, the Old Testament was this. Here is my law, you keep it, and if you keep it, you'll be righteous. The only problem was nobody could keep God's law. So in that Old Testament, that Old Covenant was a, was a provision for the broken law of God, and that was animal sacrifices. The only problem was they had to keep offering those sacrifices year after year. They were ineffective. Again, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, beginning with verse one, look at this. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, they can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having been once cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Now, that's a bunch of words. Let me summarize it. The writer is saying, if the Old Testament sacrifices were effective, the first time they offered a sacrifice, it would have cleansed them from sin forever. But the fact is, they had to keep making the same sacrifices year after year after year, proving those sacrifices couldn't take away people's sins. Otherwise, people would be clean after one sacrifice. And that's what verse 3 of Hebrews 10 says. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The reason God gave the sacrifices and made them do it year after year after year was to create a longing in them for a one-time sacrifice that would satisfy the demands of a holy God forever. And that's the sacrifice Jesus made. Not of the blood of bulls and goats, but he made a sacrifice of his own blood. And he offered it not to some earthly priest, but to God himself. And he has taken away our sins forever. Aren't you grateful for that? We have a high priest who has offered the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Remember Exodus 12, 13, what God said to the Israelites on that night, they were getting ready to leave before he sent his 10th and final judgment. He said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get Passover from. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All God needed to see was the blood of that innocent lamb. But that blood of the lamb only exempted them from God's 10th judgment that night. It didn't exempt them from the future that awaited them if they died without the sacrifice, and that is eternal separation from God. When we trust in Jesus to be our Savior, God places his blood on our lives, 
And when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the blood of his own perfect son that was shed on our behalf. And that's why Romans 8, 1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus. God passes over us in judgment. We no longer have to feel hell and fear hell. We can know that we will experience eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the picture of the Lord's Supper. Now, we've talked about the preparation for this Last Supper. We've talked about the partaking of the Last Supper. Let's talk about the purpose of this passage, the purpose of Passover. You know, it's so easy to do what I did this week and get caught up in the details of the Passover and the four cups and the Seder and what they represent. It's possible to get so tangled up in the details of this passage that we miss the point. We miss the whole purpose of this supper. We miss the purpose of this chapter. We miss the purpose of the Bible. We miss the point of human history when we get lost in the details. What is the purpose of this Passover? It's found in two words that Jesus repeats. Look at verse 19. And when he had given, taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Underline that. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, and in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out, there it is again, for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's the purpose of Christ's death for us, for you, for you. That word for, that preposition is the Greek word uper, U-P-E-R, uper. Uper can mean for the benefit of. That's obvious. God gave his body, he gave his blood for our benefit. But that preposition uper can also mean in the place of. In the place of. That's what we mean when we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ is our sin substitute. That means instead of directing God's wrath toward us, which we deserve, he directed his wrath toward his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the substitute for us. He is the one who gave his body. He is the one who gave his blood in our place. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. When Paul said, for God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of the punishment we deserve was poured out on Christ. All of the righteousness and blessing we don't deserve was given to us because of Christ. That's what it meant. This body, this bread is for you. It's given for you. You know, we all need to hear that message. But that night in the upper room, there are two men who desperately need to hear that message, that message of forgiveness that Christ was about to make. One was obvious, Judas. Here's a man that in a few hours after that dinner, 
would betray the Lord Jesus Christ and deliver him over to Jesus' enemies. That's obvious, but there's somebody else who needed to hear the message that night, and that was Simon Peter, the leader of the apostles. Remember what Jesus said to him at that dinner, Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, literally to put you through the grinder. That's what Satan wants to do. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, will strengthen your brothers. What Jesus was saying was, Simon, Satan is trying to destroy you. He's trying to destroy you. I'm praying that your faith will not fail, but it is going to fail. And what I'm praying for you is that when it fails, you will turn back to me and give courage to the others. We know what happened. A few hours later, Judas betrayed the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was delivered over to his captors. Judas once, never once, turned to the forgiveness that God was offering him. He was taken from there to the courtyard of Caiaphas, to Caiaphas' home, the high priest, and the home also of his father-in-law, Annas, the high priest. And while he was under trial, Peter was in the courtyard. Remember what happened? He denied the Lord Jesus Christ, not just once or twice, but three times. And when he saw the face of Jesus, he realized what he had done. He wept bitterly, continually, the Bible says, but he turned to faith and received God's forgiveness that Jesus had promised. Two men who needed forgiveness that evening, two men who were offered forgiveness that evening, but note their different responses. Judas heard the offer, but he turned away from it. Peter heard the offer and he turned toward God's forgiveness. This body, this blood is for you. There's some of you here right now this morning, some watching this telecast. You may be saying, Pastor, you don't understand what I've done. God could never forgive me. Just think, the Apostle Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a murderer of Christians. Yet he said, I found forgiveness. I'm exhibit A of God's willingness to forgive anybody who will simply ask. I'm the chief of sinners. Peter denied Jesus. I bet you've never done that. Once, twice, three times. But God forgave Peter. Made him the greatest spokesman for the Christian faith ever. Made him the leader of the church. If God can forgive Paul, if he can forgive Peter, he can forgive you. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what this supper is all about tonight. This is what this book that contains the gospel of Jesus is all about. This body that is broken for you, this blood that has been shed for you, it's not just for somebody else. It is for you, for you, for you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. No one moving or leaving for any reason. There's some of you that need to hear that message right now. It's a message of hope. 
God says, I'm willing to forgive if you're willing to ask for it. If you're willing to put your faith and trust in not your goodness, but in God's grace, his amazing grace, to really believe when Jesus died on that cross, on that Good Friday, he wasn't dying for his sins. He had no sin, but he died for you in your place. God's made the offer. Will you accept it? You say, well, how do I accept that offer? God made it so simple that even a child can understand. If you'll confess your sin to God, your need for a savior, and believe with all of your heart that Jesus died for you, you can be saved forever. Your sins are forgotten forever. You're a part of God's family forever. If you'd like to receive that gift of forgiveness, I invite you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart as I prayed out loud, knowing that God is listening to you right now. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.